0: I'm Amanda Littman, and this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Our guest this week is David Daly. He's the author of Rat Fucked, Why Your Vote Doesn't Count, and Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. I've been wanting to have Dave on the show to talk about the recently released census data and how these numbers will affect the midterm elections and beyond. He is the former editor-in-chief of Salon, a senior fellow at Fair Vote, and really the best reporter on redistricting. We really wouldn't know about Red Map or any of the Republican strategies to control state legislatures and ultimately control Congress for a decade without Dave's reporting. We talk a lot about Republican strategies for retaining power on battleground. And so in this week's episode, Dave and I really get into the specifics of how they're going to redraw districts to subvert democracy. Dave reminds us that we are in an existential fight for the kind of democracy we want to live in. And that fight requires all of us to participate. Before we get into my conversation with Dave, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on on the local level across the country. We have seen some incredible pushback by Democratic city council members, school board members, county judges, county executives against Republican governors who are banning mask mandates. In Florida, Ron DeSantis is trying to ban school boards from issuing mask mandates. He's threatened to take away their pay. He said his PAC will go after them, especially in (laughs) some Democratic communities like Broward County, Miami-Dade, Palm Beach. Um, In Texas, Governor Abbott again, issued rulings that said they were not allowed to put in mask mandates in Harris County, where Houston is. Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo, along with the Harris County attorney, Christian Menefee, pushed back, sued the governor, and most recently won in the Texas Supreme Court, where they sided with Harris County, saying they could, in fact, have a mask mandate. I think what these two examples illustrate is something really, really, really important for the Democratic Party to take away for the next decade and beyond, which is that winning local elections is not just good for politics. It is. It is good for building up the party. It is good for engaging with voters. It is good to build a bench of talent for the future. It is also really important for policy. But we often forget that elections have consequences in terms of the impact they have on saving people's lives. The mask mandates that Miami-Dade County Schools and Broward County Schools are putting into place and the mask mandate in Harris County in Texas is going to save lives. And that's because there are Democratic leaders there who are willing to fight. And it's kind of a hot take for me to say this, but the Democratic Party, as we've talked about over the course of many, many episodes of Battleground, has to think about these kinds of positions as as important, if not more so, than winning control of Congress. In part because winning control of them helps us win control of Congress, but also because even in states that we might not win their electoral college votes, we might not win their congressional delegations, we might not win the Senate seats, having Democratic leaders there in as many places as we can helps people. And what's the point of all of this if we're not actually helping people? With that, I'm really excited for you to hear our conversation with Dave Daly. I think you're going to like it. Dave Daly, welcome to Battleground.
1: Thanks for having me, Amanda.
0: You know I'm obsessed with this. I think redistricting and the process in 2010 and the state legislative elections that led to the redistricting crisis we're in now is one of the most, it's somehow both over-discussed and under-discussed political stories of this moment. Like we literally can't talk about it enough, in part because I think the people who control the mechanisms to fix it don't seem to understand how much of a crisis it is. So we'll get into that in a little bit. I want to just start by defining some terms. So let's do quick the difference between reapportionment and redistricting.
1: Reapportionment is when the number of house seats that each state has is adjusted for population after the census. Redistricting is when every state legislative and congressional seat is redrawn every 10 years after the census.
0: And gerrymandering is?
1: When partisan politicians take advantage of the process of redistricting to draw lines that lock in an advantage for themselves for the next decade.
0: And can you give us a very TLDR history of gerrymandering?
1: Patrick Henry tries to gerrymander James Madison out of our very first (laughs) Congress as long as we've had politicians, they have tried to rig the lines to give themselves advantages. It is oddly, however, a uniquely American problem. Mm. Other countries around the world do not district the same way. They don't let politicians have control over this process There was a governor of Massachusetts named Elbridge Gerry, who in 1812, uh, his party, the Democratic Republicans, tried to draw lines for the state Senate districts around Boston in such a way as to screw once again the hated Federalists out of the seats that they thought they'd win that fall. And one of those districts in the Boston area resembled a salamander to a political cartoonist. And so Elbridge Gary goes down as the father of gerrymandering. But while we have had gerrymandering for hundreds and hundreds of years, it really explodes in 2010. And that is because really of two things. I would say one is the political intention that Republican Party operatives recognized after the big blue waves of 06, of 08, the demographic trends that were not heading in their direction. They realized that they needed a strategy, a path back to power. And they saw that the 2010 election being a census year, that if they could redistrict in such a way uh, as to give themselves an edge that would be very valuable at a time in which the country headed politically in the other direction. But also it's because the sophistication of the map making software, the power of the computers, and just the granular nature of the big data that is available to makers in 2010 is of a magnitude of the like that, you know, I mean, Patrick Henry and Elbridge Gary didn't have this, but the folks who were drawing lines in 2000- Didn't have it either. There's a quantum leap between 2000 and 2010. I mean, the term on steroids is overused, but that's exactly what it is. 2010 is gerrymandering on steroids. It locks in historic advantages for the party that was in control. That was the Republican Party. And that is in many ways the story of our politics for the last decade.
0: How much of a quantum leap have we made between 2010 and now 2020?
1: Not much at all. Hmm. And I fear for the quantum leap that will happen between 2020 and 2030, because I think that over the course of this next decade is when we're going to see algorithms written that can really use AI technology in such a way as to spit out maps that look ahead for a decade and imagine population trends and sort of where things are going. But that breakthrough... Map makers tell me didn't really happen over the course of the last decade. I think things will be pretty similar this time t- to what we had back in 2010, 2011. What I fear really is the collision of that census data with the redistricting process, because what the census data shows is a population that is growing slowly, but that almost all of that population growth is due to Latino and Asian voters, and it's especially due to Latino and Asian voters across the Sunbelt. So whether you're talking about North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Arizona, Texas, this is really where the population is growing. Many of those states are the ones that received additional congressional seats through reapportionment. And those are states where Republicans effectively control every lever of redistricting. The census shows us becoming an ever more diverse multiracial nation. This process will determine whether we can actually become a multiracial democracy. And there are a lot of forces that appear to be lined up in the way of that, determined to obstruct it once again. I
0: mean, that basic fact that America is on a path to become a multiracial country is the reason that Republicans are making such an intentional effort to suppress voters, to redraw districts in such a way to diminish the impact of the votes of communities of color. Like, it's it's not a secret why they are doing this. They just don't want people of color and young people to vote. Because if they vote, they probably won't win.
1: It's not a secret why they're doing it. Mm-mm. And it's not a secret how easy it is to use this process to get away with it. I mean, in 2011, Texas wins four additional seats in the U.S. House through reapportionment. And something like 90% of the population growth that drove those four seats in Texas was due to communities of color. And Texas Republicans drew a map that not only failed to create a single additional opportunity district for candidates of color, (laughs) but took one of the old ones away. Mm -hmm. And so this is what we're looking at this time, right? I mean, Texas is up by 4 million people. More than half of that is Latino voters alone. What are the maps going to look like? Florida is up by two million people, 54% of that growth in Florida, Latino voters alone. How are our districts going to be drawn that reflect that changing personality or will Republicans draw districts that solidify their incumbents and pack Democrats and communities of color into as few districts as possible? Given what happened last time around, I think we've got a little bit of foreshadowing <laughs> as to what the answer will be this time.
0: Yeah, I've heard some really interesting interviews with some of the Republican strategists who both participated in RedMap in 2010 and then are participating in the redistricting process now. And many of them are like, Red Map was totally overblown. You Democrats give it too much power. I mean, look, we lost seats in 2018, One, I think that's underselling because they don't want Democrats to engage in this. And two, I've seen some studies, and I think you've seen these as well, that in 2018, yes, Democrats won the House. But if not for the redistricting process of 2010, we would have won an additional anywhere from 36 to 40 seats. Like, it is outrageous how rigged these maps have been in their favor. Do you think we are underselling the power of Red Map from 2010? And can you define Red Map for folks who might not be familiar?
1: Red Map is the redistricting majority project, and it created exactly what it was named after. Republicans recognized that state legislatures provided the road to power because state legislatures control these maps in about 75 percent of our states. So what Republicans did in 2010 is they focused on winning back state legislative chambers in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Indiana. And they invested $30 million down ballot in these local races. And in the last six weeks or so of the campaign, all of the focus group research into sort of the negative issues that would work was unleashed. Hundreds of thousands of dollars dumped into these local races, uh, drowned and swamped incumbents who never saw it coming. Republicans took over the chambers, remapped the following year, and Democrats could not take back a single one of those chambers in any one of those states or any of the other ones for the next Decade to come, even when they won hundreds of thousands more votes. Mm-hmm. So sure, maybe the Republicans want us to think that this was not an effective strategy. They did not lose a single chamber in any of those states, even when they won hundreds of thousands of fewer votes. Votes. Yeah, let's focus first on the state legislatures and the massive impact that that has had not only on politics and the ability to draw lines, but on policy, on reproductive rights, on voting labor rights, rights, criminal rights, on voting justice, reform. Rights, on criminal justice reform, emergency manager mask mandate powers of a governor during a pandemic to keep a state safe. So all of these things were won by red map. In 2010, and they were effectively held on to for the course of the last decade, despite where voters wanted to go because of the lines that Republicans drew. And now let's get into how this affected the fight for Congress. Republicans did lose Congress in 2018, but Democrats didn't win it back because they defeated the gerrymander. Not in the least bit. Democrats did not win back a single seat in our most gerrymandered states. Nothing in North Carolina in 2018, nothing in Ohio, nothing in Wisconsin. Democrats were able to take back the House in 2018 because they ran a perfect inside straight in states where courts or commissions draw the seats. More than 70% of the seats that flipped in 2018 were drawn by courts or commissions. By 2020, you had had courts overturn Republican maps in Florida, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Virginia. Many of those maps had helped Democrats win back the House in 2018, by the way. But by 2020, you add North Carolina into that mix. The map in Pennsylvania had been a 13-5 Republican map. The map in North Carolina had been a 10-3 Republican map. Those are now 9-9, and 8-5. That's six seats. The edge in the House is five. Republicans would have held the House in 2020 if not for those two lawsuits that forced Fair Maps in Pennsylvania and North Carolina. This is the impact of gerrymandering. Republicans lost the popular vote for the U.S. House in 2020 by 4.7 million votes. But had those lawsuits in two states gone the other way, it's a 218, 217 house. So the idea that gerrymandering is overblown is just absolute bullshit.
0: Battleground is going to take a short break. More with David Daly when we return. Welcome back to Battleground. We're here with David Daly. It makes me so angry when folks from the White House say, well, Democrats just have to out-organize the gerrymander. You just got to work harder. Like one, fuck you. We worked really hard from 2016 and some of us from 2015 and before all the way through to 2020. And in fact, the only reason we were able to succeed in 2020 was because of that ongoing sustained work year over year over year. People were very tired and cost a lot of money. And it's still only came just barely over the edge. You cannot out a gerrymander. You just can't.
1: When Republicans won the big Tea Party wave in 2014, they won the House popular vote by about 4.3 million. And that led to 247 seats. Hmm. And so when Democrats win by 4.7 million, they get These slender little majorities. And that's what has happened. Democrats have to win by these huge numbers to have even a shot at a slender majority. And that's why you can't outorganize this. You can't outwork a partisan gerrymander. And when you add voter suppression on top of that, in some of these states, like Georgia and Arizona and Wisconsin, that fifteen thousand 15,000 votes is the difference between them going red and blue in the 2020 election. If you think you can somehow out that, you know, somebody ought to place a call to the citizens of Wisconsin or the citizens Mm -hmm. of North Carolina or or Pennsylvania, you know, and ask them if if they've been able to out-organize partisan gerrymandering, the citizens of Michigan, where Democratic statehouse candidates won more votes every single election cycle for for the last decade and never, ever took a majority in the statehouse. Ask the people of Flint, whose water is poisoned as a result, whether you can out-organize partisan gerrymandering. It has never been done. And the idea that the White House thinks it can be done, when the one thing that would work, passing a law against it, is within their power, the party controls the White House and both branches of Congress. They have it within them to do the work. To pass the law that would solve this, or at least go a long way towards mitigating what is happening in state capitals nationwide as far as voter suppression and what's about to happen with regard to redistricting. And instead of passing a law, they're trying to tell us to outorganize and outwork it. I mean, this is why
0: people like you and I are losing our minds a little bit, because it feels like we're being gaslit. <laughs> we are. And I think just to like put a really fine point in this, I'm wondering if this matches some of the numbers that you've seen, but the latest research I was looking at this morning was that based on the maps that are to be expected, Democrats have a floor of about 195 seats and a ceiling of about like 232-ish. So there's probably about 37, maybe, like genuinely swing seats. And that's probably being a little generous.
1: And that's before they redraw the maps.
0: Yeah, that sounds right. If the, when they redraw them, how many become
1: swing seats? When I say that Democrats could pass a law and stop this, they don't have much time. No. Because I don't think they stand much of a chance of holding on to the House in 2022. Republicans could pick up somewhere between 10 and 12 seats simply through redistricting Texas, North Carolina, Florida and Georgia alone. Then you can add on to that a seat in New Hampshire that they've already said they're going to claim because they Mm -hmm. have complete control there. They're going to take Congresswoman David's seat in Kansas. They've already promised that. They could crack blue cities in red states like Louisville, Kentucky, like Memphis and Nashville, Tennessee, and they could pick up a couple of seats right there. So – when you add all that together, you're looking at probably at least 14, 15 seats that could go into the red column through redistricting alone. Democrats could take back one or two of those in Illinois. Are they gutsy enough to try to shoot the moon in Maryland and go for an 8-0 map? I don't think the incumbents want their margins sliced that thin. they didn't last time. And, you know, also I wonder About the optics of a state where the leaders of the For the People Act, in many ways, would then be installing a brutal partisan gerrymander. I'm not sure that they're going to go for an 8.0 map there. And then the question becomes New York. Will Democrats overrule the commission in the legislature and impose their own map? I think they're likely to. Can you get two or three more seats there? The census in New York City showed a lot of population growth. If you attach pieces of New York City, you know, and draw them upstate like spaghetti strands, I guess you could (laughs) probably come up with a couple of more. That's still a Republican plus nine, plus 10. Or they could pass a law. (laughs) And they could pass a law that is popular. Democrats, Republicans, independents, everybody hates partisan gerrymandering. They could pass a law that is popular or they can lose the House maybe for a decade. You tell me what they're going to choose.
0: <laughs> I have never once had faith in Democrats finding a backbone. So don't look to me for optimism here. <laughs> One argument I have heard is that things are bad and we're in a better place than in 2010, in part because we we've winning Virginia, in part because of a number of independent redistricting commissions most notoriously. I think in Michigan, where there is actually a chance for Democrats to win the majority in the 2022 elections. Can you talk a little bit about both how that works and what the sort of possible crises could be with even an independent
1: commission? What happened in 2018, in many ways, is a magical story of citizens coming together and winning independent redistricting in Michigan and Colorado. Utah through ballot initiatives, through ballot initiatives, oftentimes young people coming together, running petition drives, raising the money, and convincing their fellow citizens that there's a better way to do this. And in Michigan, they won with 61% of the vote, and they're going to have an independent commission draw lines that last time around were so toxic that Democrats couldn't win on them for a decade. So that's all great news. The trouble is that these commissions can be really easily gamed and that Republicans have figured out how to do it. And right now around the country, Republicans are manipulating and hijacking these independent commissions in such a way as to corrupt the integrity of the lines they're going to draw. In Arizona, this might be the most corrupted independent commission in the country. Republicans have engaged in a seven-year effort to hijack this board, starting with hijacking something called the Commission on Appellate Court Appointments, who vets the candidates to be the independent chair. In Arizona, you've got a five-person commission, two Democrats, uh, two Republicans, and an independent chair, the Commission on Appellate Court Appointments picks the five finalists and hands them to the four partisan commissioners to decide. And if they can't decide, it goes back to them as a tiebreaker. So what Republicans recognized was if they stopped appointing Democrats to the Appellate Court Commission Board, they could control who the final five appointees were and force one of their own onto the process. And the commissioner cast the tiebreaking vote. And so there you go. Mm -hmm. And so Every single vote that has happened in Arizona so far has been a three-two party line vote with the chair siding with the two Republicans. And then in Michigan, the Michigan Commission just decided that they would appoint a law firm called uh, Baker Hostetler as their litigation uh, counsel. This is the firm that defended the Republican gerrymanders in Pennsylvania and North Carolina in those lawsuits we talked about. This is a firm that is oftentimes the in-house counsel largely Mm -hmm. for the Republican National Committee and the go-between between between Hoffler and the Republican operatives who were gerrymandering Ohio's congressional districts.
0: It is striking. They don't do any of this in secret. It's not low-key. It's not under the radar. They just, they say the quiet parts out loud. This is what our goal is. We're going to do partisan gerrymandering. It is in many places going to be incredibly race-based. But surely, Dave, won't the Supreme Court do something? (laughs) Explain (laughs) the context of the Supreme Court here. Why will they not weigh in on something like this?
1: John Roberts has essentially made his entire career out of trying to eviscerate the Voting Rights Act. And this goes back to his very first job in Washington as a young aide at the Justice Department of the Reagan White House, trying to convince Ronald Reagan not to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act as far back as 1982. And Roberts is on the Supreme Court. He becomes chief justice by 2013 when he writes the decision in the Shelby County case that effectively undoes the preclearance formula that had held back some of the worst race-based voting laws in some of the jurisdictions with the worst record on attempting to, to pass those laws. Roberts said, well, it's not the 1960s anymore and these states shouldn't Still be judged as if... We're
0: over racism now.
1: (laughs) John Roberts doesn't see color.
0: Hmm. Neat.
1: Uh, Justice Ginsburg famously said, uh, you don't throw away your umbrella just because you're not getting wet in the middle of a rainstorm. And indeed, as soon as we threw away the umbrella of preclearance, everybody got soaked in all of those jurisdictions, including Texas, where the voter ID law that disenfranchised effectively 600,000 Latino voters and made it possible to vote with a gun license, but not a student ID, Mm -hmm. went into effect the very afternoon that John Roberts eviscerated the Voting Rights Act. So, so much for it not being 1965 anymore. So, the Roberts Court has really been a wrecking crew on voting rights. They have done for the Republican Party through the court's What they have not been able to do legislatively, which is effectively gut all of the most crucial and effective civil rights legislation that the nation has ever had. And then in 2019, this court. Just as federal courts around the country, in cases out of Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Maryland, North Carolina, judges appointed by presidents of both parties saw both the urgency of the need to do something about partisan gerrymanders that were more entrenched than ever, and also recognized that courts now had the tools to recognize them and do something about it, at exactly that moment is when John Roberts and His band of robed ideologues decided to call partisan gerrymandering a non-justiciable political issue, and they closed the federal courts Mm. to these cases. So that avenue is effectively closed for voters who are trying to uh, protest anti-small-D democratic maps that are drawn this cycle. Worse than that, it gives a green light to so many state legislatures to draw whatever map they possibly want, knowing that. This court won't do anything about it. And in many states where the state Supreme Court becomes the only road to protest these maps, even the state Supreme Courts have been hijacked. And this is I what's don't happening think, in
0: Florida now, yeah?
1: Florida, Texas, Georgia, Arizona. These state courts have been really packed over the course of the last decade with partisan judges. So, while Democrats did win important cases in North Carolina and Pennsylvania, I think that the road offered by state courts to fair maps in 2021 is a really bumpy and uneven one because you can't count on the judiciaries in these states to make similar rulings. And it's these states where the maps are likely to be the most egregious where Republicans have also already built in the protection of a conservative Supreme Court.
0: Battleground will be back with David Daly after a few quick ads. Battleground is back with David Daly. I think the pandemic has given us a really useful metaphor here. You know, in the case of COVID, it's you have a Swiss cheese layers. You've got masks and vaccines and social distancing and filters and, you know, quarantine, all of that. None of them are perfect, but combined, all of them do a pretty good job of getting you to the ultimate goal. Similarly, the Republicans have a Swiss cheese model for protecting sustainable power. You know, they have gerrymandering, which pretty close to perfect, not quite, but pretty close over the short term and probably the long term. They have voter suppression. They have the courts. They have both federal, state, and Supreme Court control in many places. Um, They have a media ecosystem. They have an organizing program. They have uh, ultimately will have control of Congress probably in the next two, if not four years. They have the Electoral College. They have ultimately a population or a, a Senate map that is rigged To err on the side of overprivileging rural white communities at the expense of communities of color and Democratic voters writ large. Ultimately, what this leads is to a system in that Democrats are stuck trying to dig out of a hole that is so deep it almost seems insurmountable. And we are at a moment, which Faz and I have talked with many of our guests over the last months, that there is a a once-in-a-generation chance to actually do something to at least. Break through one of those holes in the slice of cheese. Maybe two. Two layers. And yet, (laughs) it doesn't seem likely. Pretend you have the ears of the Democratic majority in Congress. What do you tell them to do so that a majority of voters' voices matter?
1: You pass the For the People Act. You pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. You add states to the union and you find a way to reform the U.S. Supreme Court by adding justices or installing term limits. All of this has already been done to you at every single level. We pretend that even these structural barriers that Democrats are facing right now were not intentionally created. I mean, the structure of the U.S. Senate is in many ways the original gerrymander. People like to say, you can't gerrymander the Senate. You can gerrymander the structure of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You absolutely can. The way that states were added in order to effectively preserve slavery, the U.S. Supreme Court has not always had nine justices on it. These are not handed down on tablets and preserved in amber. They have been adjusted many times in our history, usually for nefarious partisan purposes. And it's broken. And we are at a really dangerous moment in our history where just about every institution is about to become Mm anti-majoritarian. Some of them have been stacked that way intentionally. Others of them are simply tilting in that direction. Seventy percent of Americans are going to live in 15 states by the middle of the 2030s. They will have 30 U.S. senators. The Electoral College. I mean, Joe Biden won by seven and a half million votes. With the popular vote, he won the Electoral College by about 44,000 votes in three states, three states that are working on voter suppression methods right now as we speak. If Tony Evers loses in Wisconsin in 2022, there was a bill in Wisconsin earlier this year that would have reallocated Electoral College votes by gerrymandered congressional district. And the two bonus electors that states get representing the U.S. senators, they wanted to give those to the candidate who won the most gerrymandered congressional districts. Mm. So Joe Biden wins the state. But under this system, Donald Trump would have taken eight of the 10 electors. We see what's happening in Georgia. We see what's happening in Arizona. We see that presidents who have lost the popular vote have appointed five of the six conservative justices onto the U.S. Supreme Court. And now we see what gerrymandering is going to be able to do to state legislatures and to the U.S. House for a decade. And it's going to doom many of our state's to being anti-majoritarian for a generation because places like Wisconsin and North Carolina have been suffering like this for a decade. But Democrats have what could be a a once-in-a-decade opportunity to do something about this. They could pass popular legislation to fix it, and that's what they have to do. There's simply no way around it. If they fail to do so... They will probably lose the House in 2022. You know, I,
0: and this is a topic that over the course of Battleground, we've come back to a lot of this sort of structural fuckery that we are in. <laughs> and sort of the end of American democracy is like on the time horizon if we don't quickly steer the train in another direction. Are there any Democrats who get the urgency of this moment, who understand this crisis and are doing something to fix it? Who are they? Tell me what they're doing.
1: I mean, I think that there are some, right? But I don't think that there's enough. And I don't think that there's 51 of them in the U.S. Senate. Mm -hmm. I think that Jamie Raskin and Don Byer get it. I think that they've got something called... A Fair Representation Act, which would effectively rework the way we elect the US House into something much more proportional and kind of re incentivize politicians to stop catering to the insane base on the right. Effectively, it includes ranked choice voting and larger multi member districts and a more mm-hmm. proportional way of doing things. I think it's the kind of big structural thinking that we have to be doing to kind of get our way out of this. But I don't see enough Democrats talking about court reform. I don't see enough Democrats talking about what do we do about the U.S. Senate? Because there are really interesting reform possibilities that would hold constitutional muster. I mean, what happens Mm -hmm. when they get up to the robert 6 i don't know what do we do about all of these structural processes that have gone haywire and if we don't do something about it shortly we're going to be out of time it sounds apocalyptic but it's hard to look at what's happening in state legislatures around the country and say oh i'm i'm just overreacting or this is hyperbole it can happen here and i think this is what it looks like
0: You know, I am probably as guilty of this as anyone of feeling a little hopeless. And I think that is in part a byproduct of a Republican strategy to get us to feel like there is nothing we can do. Now, in practice, I clearly don't believe that I've dedicated my life and my career to doing this. We help young people run for office. I believe that is a key part of the path forward, if not the only one. And I agree with you that this is a, the sky is falling and the chickens cannot be yelling loudly enough moment. That being said, I want to make sure that we don't end on a low note. (laughs) Is there stuff that we as voters, as actors in this space can do? Is there any hope for a ultimately multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-class democracy?
1: Yes. Yes. There (laughs) absolutely is. But it's going to take huge courage and a lot of work. I mean, democracy... Is a verb, and it's all of our responsibilities to use it actively and to go ahead and do that work. I mean, in the same way that you get up and do this work every day, I mean, I went out and wrote a book Mm -hmm. about all of the optimistic efforts that were going on around the country. There are amazing stories of people around the country who have done unbelievable work in places where you would never imagine it possible. The story from Idaho, I think, is one of my favorites, and it's where I draw a lot of sense of, of optimism and possibility. You had some young people in Idaho who wanted to expand Medicare under Obamacare, and their state legislature. Several cycles in a row, refuses to do anything about it. So they decide that they will take the ballot initiative route and force them to. So they start a group called Reclaim Idaho and they get an old RV and they paint it green and they start driving around the state collecting signatures. And uh, this is Idaho, right? I mean, you can count the number of Democrats elected to office in Idaho, like literally on one hand in some cycles in the House. (laughs) and in the state Senate. And it's not easy to get on the ballot in Idaho. It is a huge state. The population is very dispersed, and you've got to collect signatures in all corners of the state. And they went out, and they got their signatures, and they got on the ballot. And then in November 2018, they won, not with 51%, they won with like 64% of the vote in Idaho. And so... When the pandemic struck, this state of rural hospitals and people who had fallen between the cracks, people had coverage. Mm -hmm. This kind of work can be done. It can be done anywhere. You can be victorious anywhere and you can have amazing impact, but it's not easy. And the other side doesn't make it easy And since that victory, has Idaho's legislature tried to make it even harder to get on the ballot? They most certainly have. But this is an existential fight for the kind of country we want to live in. And all of us have got to be engaged in that fight. I mean, Dr. King talked about the arc of moral courage being long, but bending towards justice. And it doesn't bend towards justice automatically. It bends towards justice when you and I and Reclaim Idaho and everybody who believes in the idea of a multiracial democracy grabs onto that arc and pulls it in the direction we want it to go. Because if we don't, there are bad actors who are trying to pull it the other way. It's more than a tug of war. This is a battle for the kind of country we want to live in. And it's up to all of us to be part of that fight.
0: Dave, I think your books, Rat Fucked and Unrigged, are equal parts deeply depressing for the former and deeply inspiring on the latter. And I don't just say that because Run for Something is in it, which I am so grateful for. Thank you for having this conversation with me today. It is my favorite topic and one I just I don't think we can talk about enough. So thanks for taking the time.
1: Such a pleasure, Amanda. You're a hero of democracy. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much to author and journalist David Daly for joining me on Battleground. As always, we love hearing from our listeners. Uh, Your comments are really helping to shape the show. So thank you to everyone who has emailed us or left us a voicemail. If there's someone you think we should have on Battleground or a topic you'd like us to cover, call, leave a message at 929-399-6748 or send us an email at battleground at recount.com. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Every rating and every review helps other people find this podcast, so it really does make a difference. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our associate producer. Tara Ottavino is our producer and story editor. And Christian castro
1: is our executive producer.